0: The following message was given by Nick Kidwell, the senior pastor of Valley Creek Church. For more information about the church, visit us online at www.valleycreek.church. Well, this morning we continue in our Sermon on the Mount series, where we're looking at what life and the kingdom of God looks like in chapter 5. Specifically, the Lord is pointing us towards what kingdom people look like as they relate to one another. We looked at anger a few weeks ago. We have keeping our word coming up next week, retaliation. I have some little gnat here that's like going right <laughs> Sorry if I look kind of like a crazy guy. Um, retaliation, loving our enemies, giving to the needy, they're all coming up as well. But this week we continue the discussion that we began last week on sexuality and marriage. Last week, we spoke of the sacredness of human sexuality, the distortion of lust and sexual sin. And this week, we pick up the conversation and look at the institution of marriage itself. Now, like last week, I want to make some upfront comments. I recognize that this discussion can be a painful one for many. Whether there exists a longing for marriage that has not been fulfilled brokenness in a marriage through sin tension or pain following a divorce what god intended to be a wonderful gift to us often is distorted through sin but up front i again want to say to you that the lord sees you he knows the pain that you experience and if you trust him he does have good for you and can bring healing to you in these areas I also want to say that there is so much that could be said on this topic, so many rabbit holes to go down or individual circumstances to ask questions on, and we certainly cannot dive into everything this morning, but we will discuss the principles that the Lord gives us to help us walk faithfully as He has called us to do. So please turn with me, if you would, to the book of Matthew. I'm actually going to do something a little unusual this morning and ask you to go to Matthew 19. We're in chapter 5, but I'm going to ask you to go to Matthew 19, verses 3 through 10. I'm going to start by reading our passage from the Sermon on the Mount in chapter 5. That's chapter 5, verses 31 and 32. But to help us understand with greater clarity Christ's teaching on marriage and divorce, we're going to jump the passage in chapter 19 where there's an extended discussion. So I'm going to first read from chapter 5, then we're going to read from chapter 19. Let me pray for us. Father, we come before you this morning just aware of our great need. Father, this area of marriage and fidelity and the pain that comes through divorce and brokenness and sin, Lord, we just, we need your grace. We need healing. We need help. We need your spirit to understand your word and what you have said to us, to see the beauty of what it is that you've called us to, and we need your spirit to be able to walk in light of the kingdom that we have been called into. Father, we lift these things up to you and pray them in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Matthew 5 31 through 32, it was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Let's read 19 now, 3 through uh, 12. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. The disciples said to him, if such is the case of a man with his wife, it's better not to marry. This is the word of the Lord. Well, we are confronted in these two passages by the Lord's high esteem that he holds for marriage, something that is lacking in our current culture. In the Sermon on the Mount, we're given the Lord's teaching on divorce in the context of Him speaking to His disciples. He's showing them what the heart of a kingdom person should be towards marriage. And then in verse or in chapter 19, we see the Lord being questioned by the Pharisees, the religious leaders, over the matter of divorce, a question that reveals a deep misunderstanding of marriage and exposes a sinful, worldly disposition towards it. The Pharisees come at Jesus, drawing Him into an ongoing debate that they had amongst themselves about the Scripture's teaching on divorce. In general, there were two schools of thought in Jesus' day. There was the Shammai and the Hillel. The Hillel teachers would have followed the general cultural sentiment that made divorce just as easy as marriage and essentially removed any prohibitions for it. One of the more revealing bits of historical writing we have records their argument that men could divorce their wives for something as trivial as burnt toast. On the other hand, the Shammai school of thought felt that it was only due to sexual indiscretion that a divorce could be initiated. And while these teachers were primarily concerned about the rights of men as most divorces in Israel and the general culture were initiated by men, the discussion for our purpose applies to men and women alike, especially in a day and age where women actually are the ones more likely to initiate a divorce. It's into this debate then that Jesus steps, both in Matthew 5 and explicitly in Matthew 19. And what is revealed to us in both of these passages is that the Lord is not introducing some new teaching or standard, but merely pointing people toward the heart of the law of God that had become lost. We see this most clearly in chapter 19. The pharisaical debate reveals that these men didn't so much care about guarding the institution of marriage itself, which was the purpose of the law, but rather they wanted to know how far can I go without sinning. They were more concerned about finding an escape hatch to marriage than they were about understanding the value of marriage itself and pursuing faithfulness In their marriages. The Lord, always astute, sees their hearts and He goes right at them. He responds with a question of His own. Have you not read? Pointing them back to the Scriptures and reminding them of this truth. The marriage covenant is instituted by God for glorious purposes and is not intended to be broken. A very good reminder for us in a day and age where No-fault divorce laws create low standards for commitment, where marriage is seen purely as a social contract and where the very definition of marriage itself is being called into question. We as Christians must have a high view of marriage, whether we're married or not, and must take seriously the Lord's perspective on divorce. So, we're going to look at two things this morning revealed to us here by the Lord the glorious gift of marriage and the devastation of divorce. And we're going to talk about some of the specific realities in each of those categories. So, first, the the glorious gift of marriage. Just as we discussed last week with sex, we need to understand the beauty and goodness of a thing if we are going to desire it. Given the generally secular worldview around us, it shouldn't surprise us that most people have a low view of marriage. And most see it simply as a social contract, a tool created by mankind. Take it or leave it, it's up to you. It's one of the many ways to approach romantic or intimate relationships. And this mentality is pervasive even among many Christians. Many Christians have fallen into the snares of such thinking and have thrown the value and sacredness of marriage out the window, choose cohabitation, engage in premarital sex, do not see the need for marriage in such a relationship at all. To those who do still get married in our culture, the cultural view of why one should marry, again, does not really support a long-lasting union. For example, Pew Research in 2019 conducted a survey to determine why most people get married. Unsurprisingly, the number one reason was love. This was taken in the United States, of course, so the number one reason was love. Number two reason, companionship. Number three reason was a desire to make a formal commitment. Also on the list were a desire to have children, the financial benefits of marriage, convenience. I'm not really sure what that meant, but... (laughs) A desire to test the relationship. That sounds like a horrible idea. Do not get married to test your relationship. And finally, unexpected pregnancy or shotgun weddings, as they were called in the days of old. Most of these are certainly good gifts and good parts of marriage that we will discuss. Companionship, love, and so forth. Purposes that God has for us in marriage. However, if we get married simply for love, for that love feeling... What happens when we fall out of it? If we get married for companionship, what happens when our companion doesn't turn out to be much fun? If we get married simply to have kids, what happens if we can't? And it's because of these reasons and so many more that the Pharisees and our culture today wants an easy way out of marriage. Marriage is fine as long as I'm having a good time and get what I want. But the minute it gets hard, please show me to the door. Well, the Lord has something so much more beautiful that He extends to us. And to grasp that, we have to understand what the Scriptures reveal to us about marriage. And there's three things in this passage that we are going to talk about, about the good gift that marriage is, that it's established by God, it's between a man and a woman, and it's a permanent bond for, intended to be a permanent bond for life. So it's established by God. While marriage certainly is a social institution, And has commonwealth good to it, it's a social institution whose designer and creator was God, not man, and whose design far exceeds simple utilitarian function. When these Pharisees bring to Jesus their question on grounds for divorce, which, as we will discuss in a minute, centers around a specific Mosaic law, Jesus takes them back to the beginning— He pushes them to recognize that their question reveals that they have forgotten what marriage was established for and who established it. He says, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. This is a significant statement from Christ. It wasn't just Moses in writing the law who told us that a man should leave his father and mother. It was God himself. In Proverbs 2, God makes clear that marriage is a covenant commitment made not just between two people, but made between two people and God. In Malachi 2, God says, we read this earlier, that He serves as a witness between men and women when they marry. This brings a gravity, and this brings a seriousness to marriage when we realize this. It also gives us motivation to pursue godly marriage because we know that as with all that God does, He has given us it for our good and for His glory. Right in our passage, we're reminded in a wedding, it's God who joins two people together. It's not ultimately the state, not ultimately the pastor, but it's God himself. The God of the universe has brought you and your spouse together. He is the originator of marriage. He's the binder of all marriages, and he is to be the center of our union. This is a weighty thing but it's a glorious thing as well. What an honor to enter into such a sacred relationship when we honor and esteem marriage, we honor and esteem our God. And for those of us who are not married, we still join in this as we care for and celebrate and help encourage the marriages around us. We recognize it is a gift from God. And we see, as Christ continues in His argument, that this glorious gift given by God is to be between one man and one woman. Though this particular statement that God made them male and female and that a man should leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife wouldn't have been controversial to the Jews of Jesus' day. It certainly is today. God's design, His good design for marriage was that it would be between one man and one woman. And though we as humans have distorted this in many ways, past and present, and we've sought to make marriage something that it's simply not and can never be, such as our contemporary discussions on same-sex marriage, God designed that marriage would be between one man and one woman in a glorious unification of two complementary yet different people. Anything outside of this is not actually marriage. God defines marriage, and we cannot alter that definition. And his definition is good. When God created Adam, he said that it was not good for man to be alone. Thus we're told... That he caused a sleep to fall over Adam. And out of Adam's side, God created Eve. Men and women, no matter how much culture likes to push back against it, were designed for each other. After the Lord created Eve from Adam's side, Adam proclaims, "'This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man.'" And closely following this, we read that the two, Adam and Eve, were naked and unashamed. God designed men and women to enjoy one another physically. To attach to one another emotionally, to give of themselves to each other completely, and he created marriage as a context for all of these things. Before they fell into sin, Adam and Eve stood before each other in sinless purity, looking on each other without shame, of fear, or abuse, or abandonment, and enjoyed one another in complete openness." We spoke last week about this, what a vulnerable thing it is to be unclothed in front of another human being, and how doing so in our marriages is the deepest expression of trust that we show to another human being, a complete freedom before them that we trust them, trust that they won't abandon us, trust that they won't abuse us. How difficult it is for us to engage with our spouses if we've been wronged by them, This is part of why after their sin, Adam and Eve quickly wanted clothes. They were afraid of one another. They were ashamed of themselves before each other, and they feared standing exposed before their God. But this was not the original design. God designed that in marriage a man and a woman could be united in beautiful harmony. The two becoming one flesh is akin to being welded together. It's a very intense statement. It's the woman coming back closely into the side from which she was taken, and the man in intimate embrace, wrapping loving and protective arms around her. In the book of Ephesians, we get a glimpse at the depth of this bond. Paul writes, In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it. This is, this is a beautiful image. An image not often seen in our society, and an image that surely the Pharisees were not picturing. Marriage is not just about us feeling happy or us being in comfort or us finding our soulmates. No, marriage is a covenant commitment before God to give ourselves fully to another person, a man and a woman reuniting in one flesh to express love and not just emotional love, though that should, Lord willing, come, but all of love, patience, kindness, humility, faithfulness, and so on. And this union then, as we see in our passage, is to be lifelong. Thus, marriage is instituted by God between a man and a woman for life. Marriage is to be a permanent institution. And it's because it reflects something glorious about how our God loves us. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. In the Ephesians passage that we referenced a minute ago, we uh, we read that Marriage is a profound mystery. Why? Because we're told that it refers to Christ and His church. Marriage, even from the beginning of creation, was designed by God as a metaphor. It's not simply a helpful metaphor for our relationship with God. No, God created it to be a metaphor for our relationship to Him. What does this mean for us then? If marriage is to be a reflection of Christ and His church, then marriage is to be an enduring, unbreakable commitment. When Christ calls us to be His and we have placed ourselves under His loving care and direction, receiving for ourselves the forgiveness that He has given us from our sins through His death on the cross, we receive not just a teacher, Not just a friend. We come under the care, along with the rest of God's people, of a loving husband. Now, men, it's okay to embrace this idea. (laughs) In theory, it's humbling for us. Christ serves as a husband to his church. And that means he serves as a bridegroom to all of his people. To love them, to care for them, to protect them. And unlike the fickle love often found in our marriages... The love with which Christ loves his people is everlasting. We're told in the book of Hebrews that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That is the love of our God. Seems like the Lord might have missed the memo on being able to ditch your spouse for burnt toast. Why is marriage to be a lasting commitment? Because it's to be a picture of how our God loves us and how we are to love Him in return. If you've been hurt by a spouse, take comfort that your spouse was only ever intended to point you towards the great bridegroom. Though your spouse failed you, the one that they were meant to point you to never will. Never will. And if you're here today and you've not accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, I encourage you to consider him. There is no surer, safer, fulfilling relationship you can have in your life than the relationship that you can have with Jesus Christ. He longs to love you and care for you and provide for you beyond anything that you have ever experienced on this earth. All that's required for us to receive this love is to admit that we've sinned and that we need His loving forgiveness and to accept His care. If we do this, we will have it. And so, as husbands and wives, we must strive to make this glorious reality known to the world through the way that we treat our spouses. Husbands, you are to cherish your wives. You are to live in patience and forgiveness with them. You are to seek their good. You are to lead in the fear of the Lord. You are to protect them. You are our ensure that they are being fed spiritually. You are to lead them to their Lord and Savior, and you are to delight in them just as the Lord delights in us. Wives, you are to cherish your husbands. You are to submit to his leadership and trusting yourself to the Lord as you follow the leadership of your husband. You're to care for your husband and be patient with him, forgiving him when he asks you to do so. You're to seek his good and to help him to grow you are to be a helper to him and seek to see that he and your family are faithful in your endeavors and prosper in your efforts. What a beautiful thing it is when a marriage operates in these ways. I marvel at couples who have fought the good fight, walked faithfully with the Lord, and pursued each other. Those old couples who still love each other, are affectionate to each other even if people are a little put out by seeing that couples like Mary and David Tao who have celebrated 50 years together or Bob, you know I can do one better. Bob and Dot Raker are friends from First Baptist who've been married 60 years. And are such a sweet sweet couple. Are these couples perfect? No, but they've grown closer rather than farther apart. And why is that? Because each spouse has caught a vision for the true purpose of marriage, has taken it seriously, and has fought to cling to the Lord for the ups and the downs. Sixty years is what can happen when both couple people in a relationship have a high view of marriage. But when our view is low then we become like the Pharisees, looking for a way out rather than seeking a way to experience marriage in its full design, which leads us to the second topic, that the devastation of divorce. With such a glorious intent and meaning behind marriage, It's no wonder then that the Lord declares in the book of Malachi, as some translations read, I hate divorce, declares the Lord. The verse goes on to say that a husband who divorces his wife, this is what we read earlier, without proper cause, covers his garment with violence. In it, that one flesh is being violently torn apart into two. In the Gospels of Mark and Luke, they emphasize the general principle of the Lord's teaching without any caveats, stating that to divorce is sin and to remarry is akin to adultery. That's the base of God's perspective on it. And though there are care- caveats, as we read in Matthew, in times when God does allow for divorce, The general idea is clear. God hates divorce because of the devastation it brings to human relationships. Divorce, we know, is deeply destructive to individuals, to their children, to their communities. And because of what it does to the institution that it's meant to display. And God's great love pictured in it. So in light of this teaching, these Pharisees, who not only wanted grounds for divorce, but actually taught that the Scriptures commanded a couple to divorce in certain situations. Essentially, ask the Lord, if marriage is so special and so sacred and so beautiful, why then did Moses command a man to give a certificate of divorce and to send his wife away? Now, let's stop for a moment. What they're referencing here is Deuteronomy 24.1, which reads, When a man takes a wife and marries her, If he then finds no favor in his eyes because he's found some indecency in her and writes her a certificate of divorce, it then goes on and describes this situation. Now, Jesus gets right at the heart of this challenge. For one, he corrects their statement that Moses commanded divorce. Though this law in Deuteronomy was among the teachings and commandments of Moses, this commandment was not a command to divorce nor was it a stamp of approval on divorce. This bit of law is what we call case law. It's important for us to understand this as we read through the Old Testament and the Levitical laws. Case law is, how do you handle X, Y, or Z when they happen? If you have questions about this, ask Lauren Neera. She's our our lawyer (laughs) expert. For instance... We might have a law saying, if you attack a stranger, you must serve one year in prison. No one in their right mind would believe that this was a command to attack strangers or see it as permission to do so simply because the law exists. Yet this is what the Pharisees had done and This law is at the center of their debates. While God spoke through Moses and provided this case law on how to deal with the unfortunate reality of divorce, the Pharisees saw this as a direct command and affirmation of the right to divorce. Rather than hearing, if in the unfortunate instance a man divorces his wife, they hear, here are the rules for when you can and cannot divorce your wife two very different messages coming through. No, the Lord corrects their thinking and shows us the first thing about divorce that we see in this passage. Divorce is a concession for sin. Jesus says, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. God ordained and established marriage as the norm and ideal. Divorce is not an establishment of the Lord, but rather a sad reality in a broken world. These Pharisees had moved divorce into the ideal category for some situations. And some of them had expanded divorce to be a God-given right in most situations. The Lord says, this is not so. God did not command divorce. God established marriage to be beautiful and wonderful. Marriage delights God and is close to the heart of God. And while divorce is permitted in some situations, it is an unfortunate and devastating end to something that was intended for great good and glory. And this is because divorce, which is a concession for sin, ultimately destroys God's design. God intended, as we said, a man and woman to be knit together spiritually, physically, emotionally in marriage. We spoke last week how when we engage physically with one another, our bodies release hormones to help us bond with our spouses. Marriage is no no joke. So when we treat it casually, when we seek divorce without just cause, we destroy God's design. And in those instances when the Lord allows for divorce, it's only because His design has already been deeply broken by a partner in the marriage. Divorce in our current day very clearly ignores this design. You aren't making me happy, I'm out. Fend for yourself. Now, I do not want to diminish the very real and very significant challenges that couples can face in marriage. And there are times to think through and pray through and receive counsel and care and understanding and how to proceed together. But the reality is the vast majority of all marriages, of all all divorces, apart from those due to infidelity, occur in situations that simply reflect sinful humans who are deciding not to patiently endure with one another not to seek the good of the other, and not turning to the Lord for help and change. The reality is that each and every divorce that occurs reflects either one or both of the spouses choosing to ignore what God has said and devaluing what God cherishes. A person seeking divorce without just cause dishonors God. Which is why we see the Lord teach that divorce, outside of the given exceptions, is sin. Divorce is a concession for sin, it destroys God's good design, and in most circumstances, divorce itself is sin. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. He takes this further in Matthew 5 saying, but I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife except on the grounds of sexual immorality makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman, divorced on unacceptable grounds, that would be, commits adultery. The Lord takes marriage so seriously that he says if a couple should divorce for reasons outside of sexual immorality, they're essentially committing adultery toward one another. And conversely, pulling others into that adultery as well should they remarry. God's saying, I do not accept your cheap rejection of marriage. You may have gotten a piece of paper saying that you are divorced, but in my eyes, you are still bound to and responsible to another. Now, this raises many questions, especially in our culture. And there's some very practical implications I want to address out of this. It's important for all of us to understand these things because we're going to have people around us in our lives. We're going to have friends and family members. We're going to have people that we know who are following the Lord, who are questioning what it is they're to do in a situation. What the Lord would be calling them to do in a tough situation. And we need to know what the Lord's word says on this so that we can care for them Come alongside of them. Support them. So these are important things for each and every one of us to understand. Even if we're single, even if we're in a marriage that seems rainbows and kittens. I don't know if there's anyone in this room who's got rainbows and kittens as the definition of their marriage. But we need to understand these things. First, we get... Helpful further teaching on divorce and remarriage by Paul in the book of 1 Corinthians, in which he reiterates, A wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and the husband should not divorce his wife. This is speaking to the situation of an unjustified divorce. In such a case, the two parties have no right to marry another as their responsibilities are not dissolved to their spouse. This is where the church would come alongside two people, care for people and pray for and work towards reconciliation. Now, what we ask is a person to do if their spouse left them without their agreement and without just cause. Must that person then remain unmarried? Is it sin for them if they should remarry? I believe that the Lord teaches us in 1 Corinthians that no, it's not. We're told that if an unbelieving spouse abandons a believing partner, that believing partner is not bound. They're free to remarry. But then we ask, what if the spouse who divorced me is a believer? What then do I do? Well, that's where involvement in the church and church discipline are such sweet gifts to us. In such a case where a self-proclaimed follower of Christ abandoned their spouse, the church would pursue that person, charge them to repent and to be reconciled to their spouse. And if they should not, like all church discipline, eventually that person would be put out of membership from the church and treated as a Gentile or as an unbeliever. Not because we despise them, But because we hope for reconciliation, we hope for God-given repentance and change. And so that means essentially, in such a case, through church discipline, it has come to be that the believing spouse was abandoned by an unbeliever. In such a case, they are not bound. There's another question that can linger. If it is akin to adultery to remarry in certain situations following a divorce, And I have done so, must now I divorce my new spouse and return to the old one? No. (laughs) We know that adultery truly does tear apart a marriage, which is why it's not sin to seek a divorce in the case of adultery. And if remarriage after an unlawful divorce is akin to adultery, then the dissolution of marital bonds truly has occurred. The damage has been done, but doing violence to another marriage is not the solution. In such a case, the solution is, repent if necessary, seek the forgiveness of your previous partner and then be free to walk in the grace of your Lord Jesus Christ. And enjoy the blessings of his mercy that he has given to us. He can work great good even in the midst of our sinful messes. And so though, no, that second marriage shouldn't have happened according to the Lord, the Lord can redeem that and sanctify that and make it a wonderful and a beautiful thing. And this is what God does for us in the midst of all of our sinful choices and decisions that we've made. And finally, if my spouse has been unfaithful to me, must I divorce them? The Lord answers this for us here too. No, you do not have to. In fact, because we are people bought by the precious blood of Jesus Christ, who can cover all sin and can bring redemption to even the darkest circumstances, divorce needn't be our first response. It may be permissible, but it isn't necessarily the best thing for us always. As a pastor, if I were to counsel you, we would start by seeing if there might be any hope of reconciliation. If your spouse is repentant and if you're able in the Lord's strength to open yourself up once again to them, that can be a great thing. I've known many marriages who have endured the hardship of infidelity. And I'm grateful for the display of redemption and reconciliation that they show. Church, we long for a day when we don't have to talk about these things anymore. Sin ravages in everything it touches, and marriage and families and relationships between people, even outside of marriage, are just ravaged by sin, and by the effects of it. And we mourn that, and we wait for the day when the Lord delivers us, finally, once and for all, from sin. For those of you here who have been hurt and are bruised by unfaithful marriages, painful divorces, we grieve with you. We pray the Lord's comfort for you For those of you here who recognize areas of your own shortcomings or infidelities, I remind you of the grace in our Lord Jesus Christ, who can untangle any knots that we have made, who offers forgiveness, who gives us great hope for a future. There are so many more specific circumstances and questions I'm sure that could arise following this message and know that myself or Tom or Jeff are happy to talk with and walk with you through whatever it is that you are facing, dealing with, or have questions on. These are weighty things, church, things that we do not take lightly or approach flippantly, but we remember that God has given mankind a wonderful gift in marriage. So that's why we take this seriously, because God intends good, and God intends to make his name known throughout this earth through marriages, among other things, and we're to handle that great gift with care and respect. And while, as with all things, following the Lord's commands do require effort, can be challenging and push us to dependence upon the Lord for strength, let's not respond to this teaching like the disciples did and say, if this is true, then it's better for a man not to marry. (laughs) This is not the heart that the Lord is seeking. This was not his intention in the teaching. Now, there is a place for remaining unmarried. And as we said last week, marriage is not where we find our contentment or our purpose in life. Those things are to be found in the Lord. And singleness can, in fact, be a very godly life to lead if the Lord calls us to it for His kingdom purposes. In singleness, we have an ability to operate on mission more freely. Paul explains this to us in 1 Corinthians. In fact, This is the very response that the Lord gives to the disciples when they make this pretty childish statement. They say, yeah, it's better not to marry. And he says, you know what? In some circumstances, you're right, but for different reasons. We're going to save that extended discussion for another day about the goodness of singleness for the Lord, but suffice to say, it can be better not to marry. However, it's not better not to marry if we do so simply to avoid commitment and the high call that the Lord places on marriage. No, we should be a people who see great beauty and opportunity in marriage. People who long to see marriages flourish and properly reflect the love of Christ. We should pray for our marriages If we're married, we should pray for the marriages of those around us. We should immerse ourselves in the word of God, ensure that our view of marriage lines up with God's and not the world. We should pull others into our marriages. We should seek counsel. We should be known by others. If you are not married, do not think that you have nothing to offer to your married friends. They need you and you need them. We should passionately protect our purity and faithfully guard one another. We should treat each other with the same respect that we show to our own flesh, seeking the good and the nourishment of each other. We should believe God that his design for marriage is good. And we should hope for better things than what the world has to offer. We should expect that God can and will bless our marriages if Both we and our spouse are seeking the Lord and we should trust that the Lord will comfort us should those things not happen. And for the good of our spouses and our own spiritual health, let's find our peace and our hope and our contentment in the Lord above all things. We pursue Him and cherish Him even more than we do our spouses. It's only when we do that that we can properly love a spouse, that we can handle the loss of a spouse or that we can walk faithfully when we do not have a spouse that we desire. Because marriage ultimately, again, just points us to the one who loves us more than anyone can, our great God, our Lord, and our Savior, Jesus Christ, who is accessible to us all. So church, let's be a people who love as the Lord has loved, whose marriages reflect the love of this glorious Christ let's pray together father we thank you for your great love for us and we ask Lord that whatever relational situations we find ourselves in whether they be friendships or familial or marriage that you help us to love as you have loved us father that we would be faithful people patient with one another loving one another, putting others' needs before our own. Father, and to help us do this, we pray that we would have a clear picture of what you've done for us through your son, Jesus Christ. And Father, I pray specifically for grace upon those who feel condemned in these areas. I pray for grace upon those who feel weary and struggling with this topic Father, we ask for your hand to comfort and to guide. We pray all of these things in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. You've been listening to a message by Nick Kidwell, given at Valley Creek Church. For more information on the church and other messages, please visit us online at www.valleycreek.church.